This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we're looking at the Gospel of John as good news for imperfect people. And this is season one, episode five, on the wedding in John chapter two, verses one through 11. You know, it's always struck me as an odd thing that the Apostle John starts off his biography of Jesus by telling us about sort of a strange miracle, a hidden miracle that at first glance seems really out of place. I mean, if I was in charge of writing the Gospels, I'd start with a bang. Start with a big miracle like the feeding of the 5,000 or the resurrection of Lazarus or walking on water. Something spectacular because you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So why not start with something big? But Jesus didn't do that. And John faithfully records for us this odd way Jesus handled a potentially touchy situation. So I'm going to read it from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let's hear God's word together. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This week, I tried to figure out just how many weddings I've been involved with over the years, either officiating or just attending, and I think it's about 150. So that's a lot of rubber chicken. Lots of variety in the styles and types of ceremonies and receptions, but there's one common characteristic that I think runs through them all. The people planning the wedding always feel overwhelmed by the preparations. Just overwhelmed, stressed out, so many details, so many lists, so many things to keep track of. So many people to please. The bride, her mother, their eyes just start to glaze over after a while. And sometimes what's supposed to be the happiest day can become one big ball of stress, especially if something goes wrong. You know, the cake flops, Uncle Joe gets too obnoxious, or a fight breaks out between drunken bridesmaids. I think in some ways, weddings are almost a metaphor for life. And we'll see how that plays out as we unpack the story from the Gospel of John. 
Now, at this point, Jesus doesn't have a full cadre of disciples. In chapter 1 of John's Gospel, we see Jesus as he is baptized in a region called Bethany, and then as he gathers his first disciples, and he has five of them. And then in chapter 2, we told that they walk with Jesus to a village of Cana in Galilee, and that's about a 60 to 65-mile hike, and it took them three days, and so they were hustling. I mean, Jesus has been invited to a wedding, and probably it was someone related to Jesus because Jesus' mother Mary has some authority at the wedding to tell the servants what to do. Now, some scholars speculate it could have been the wedding for one of Jesus' younger brothers or a cousin. We don't know for sure, but it was a family affair. There is no mention of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, so we can assume that he was already dead by this time. That would make Jesus, as the firstborn son, make him the head of the household, and his presence at the wedding was important to the family. This may also signal that Jesus' younger brothers were of age now, and he could begin his public ministry because they were able to take over and sustain the family. Now, we have to understand that ancient Middle Eastern weddings were very different from the kind of weddings we have here in the United States. In Western weddings, the bride is the centerpiece. The bride is the focus. The triumphant moment is when the bride appears. The whole congregation rises in her honor as she enters in all her beauty and glory. Every eye focused on her. But ancient Middle Eastern weddings were not that way. The groom was most prominent. The groom took center stage because he was paying for the whole thing. The groom sort of struts like a peacock because it's his day, and the bride is somewhat of an afterthought. And the wedding celebration could go on for three, four, even five days. Now, it wasn't just some drunken binge. It was more like a huge family reunion. All the relatives from all over the country would come together. The in-laws, the outlaws, the whole community was there. The whole kit and caboodle. This was the feast before the actual wedding. It began late in the evening with a torchlight procession through the village streets. The groom and the bride wore crowns like royalty. The procession went the longest way possible to wherever the wedding ceremony was going to be, usually someone's home, and everyone stayed for four or five days. So they all had to be fed, and there's got to be enough wine, which was the common drink at all meals back then. That's a big catering job. Families would go into hock to pay for it. But somehow, in all the details of this particular wedding, whoever ordered the wine didn't order enough. And that was going to be a big problem because to run out of food or wine at such an important family and community event, it was really inexcusable. It would have brought great shame upon the whole family, but especially the groom, who was the ultimate host. Part of the sense of shame in that culture came because people really looked forward to these celebrations. You have to remember the Jews at this point were conquered people. They've been that way for hundreds of years. They spent their days in real hardship under the occupation of the army of the Roman Empire. They lived with the heel of the Roman boot on their backs. And so as an oppressed people, they looked for any reason to celebrate just to keep themselves going. Some commentators draw parallels to the African-American experience under slavery. There are historical reasons why some African-American worship services will go on for three, even four hours. Historically, as slaves, Sunday was that one day when they didn't work. And church was one of the few times they were allowed to gather together in a large group. And they needed that time of release and celebration because the rest of their lives was so bleak. 
And so today in many African-American churches, the music and the preaching, it goes on and on, and the Holy Spirit doesn't really show up until the third hour. Much of celebration comes out of a feeling or an experience of oppression. Well, this was a time of great celebration, but there is a problem. Mary comes to Jesus and simply says they have no more wine. Hospitality in the Middle East, it's a sacred duty. Nothing would be more humiliating to run out of food or drink. So either they didn't estimate right or they didn't have enough money or they didn't realize Jesus was bringing more than his plus one. You know, the Jews of Jesus's day had a saying, without wine, there is no joy. So nothing was more embarrassing to the host family. And Mary comes to Jesus with this problem. Well, why? Why did she prod him to do something about it? He had never performed any miracles before, but she knew her son. She had seen him in many situations around the home, and as the head of the family since Joseph died, she'd seen him handle emergencies and problems, so instinctively she came to him. What do we do? We're out of wine. There were no package stores to go to to quickly replenish their supply. No wine cellar. But she may have thought Jesus could figure out a solution. But there's more than that going on here. It's possible Mary had heard about what happened when Jesus was baptized and the heavens opened and God anointed Jesus for his ministry. And maybe she thought, now's the time. She knew what the angel had said when he was conceived in her. She may not have understood fully the implications of the angel Gabriel's message, but now Jesus had been publicly acclaimed as the Lamb of God. And maybe this was the moment, this was the hour to make his move and you know, she loved her son. Maybe she was eager for him to take center stage and to seize his moment. We're given a little hint of this in Jesus' reply to Mary in verse 4, where he says, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus sounds a little abrupt with her. Woman. Some people read that and think Jesus was being snippy with his mom. I mean, when I was a kid, if I called my mom woman like that, I'd better get ready to duck. No, well, that's not it. The word translated as woman is dunai, and it's, the very, it's a very endearing term. It's the same word that Caesar Augustus used of the love of his life, Cleopatra. It's the same word Jesus would use when he's dying on the cross and he gives his mother Mary into the care of the Apostle John. That's in chapter 19, verse 26, where he says, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple John, here is your mother. So Jesus wasn't being a smart aleck. He says, Mom, my hour has not yet come. Well, what's that mean? What's he referring to? Well, like I said earlier, Mary may have heard about his baptism, how the heavens opened and God spoke, you know, said, this is my beloved son. She may have heard of the calling of the disciples and so her, her expectation and dreams of Jesus being revealed as the Messiah as she was promised when she was born. She's expecting that now would be a good time for him to act. In her mind, she might have been thinking, now my son is beginning to fulfill his destiny. Now is the time for him to do something big. And perhaps like so many people who misunderstood Jesus' essential mission, she expected him to instantly claim the throne of David and drive out the Roman oppressors. Mary expected this to happen, and now was as good a time as any to go public with it. But Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. That's sort of a Hebrew way of saying you don't understand. You don't really get it yet. What I'm going to do will not accomplish what you're hoping for. It will not usher in a new political kingdom. It will not even persuade the people that I am the Messiah. Miracles are part of the plan, 
and they will be performed, but they won't convince the nation. So Mary sort of has this checklist in her mind of what she thinks Jesus should do. She has it all set up in her mind how it's supposed to go. And Jesus says, none of the above. It's not going it, to, it's going to go a different way. It's coming in time, but not yet. Please leave the timing to me. I know you're eager for me to be crowned as Messiah, but you must learn to trust me and trust my timing. Please be patient. My hour has not yet come. Jesus says that several times in the Gospel of John, as his disciples also put pressure on him to go public, like in John 7, verse 6, my hour has not yet come. But then in John 12, verse 23, at that moment when he rode into Jerusalem seated on a donkey, and the people were crying out, Hosanna to God, and his enemies tell Jesus to quiet the crowd, and Jesus replies, my hour has come. And if I silence their voices, the very stones of the road would cry out. It's at that moment that he is ready to reveal himself as God's Messiah, not as a conquering king, but as the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God's sacrifice for the sin of the world, the Lamb who rises from the dead, ascends into heaven in victory over the grave. So it's not yet time for Jesus to fully reveal who he is, and though Jesus has a great love for his mother, he's not forced into a mold by her or by anybody else. The timing and strategy of his ministry was not his mother's hand. Mary gets the message. He's not ready to go fully public, but that's not going to stop him from doing something. So Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Isn't that really what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Do whatever he tells you. To be a Christian, do whatever he tells you. Later in John 14, verse 5, Jesus will say, If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Faith is only faith if it results in actions. Or Luke 6, 20, or 46. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? Faith is only faith if it results in actions. Do whatever he tells you. Do you have a desire to do whatever Jesus tells you to do? We look around, we see things, we see how we would do things if we were God, but he doesn't follow our script. What if we took a step back and said, not as I will, but as you will, Lord? What if we looked at our circumstances and the things going on in our lives and we just began to trust him that he's in control and that he does have the whole world in his strong hands? Whatever situations you're facing this week, whatever is stressing you, are you able to say to the Lord, your will and not mine? Help me to do what you want me to do in this situation. Are you able to trust him for whatever he allows into your life and then to act on that trust? Faith is only faith if it results in actions. And this brings me back to Mary's role in the story. And this is important for the many Roman Catholic friends you may know. Often in Catholicism, people talk about praying to Mary or having her intercede for them rather than praying directly to Jesus. Well, this is the only story in Scripture that really shows us much about the relationship between Mary and Jesus. And what does she tell the servants? What are her words to them? Very simply, do whatever Jesus tells you. Do whatever Jesus tells you. That's what Mary said for the servants to do. Turn to Jesus. You see, you don't need to go through saints. You don't need to go through angels. You don't even need to go through Mary when you pray. You don't have to go through any kind of layers to get to Jesus or any intermediaries. 
We get our instruction straight from him. We get our marching orders straight from him. Do what he says. That's good godly advice for all of us right here and right now. Have the desire to do whatever Jesus says, to follow what Jesus taught, and to live into that kind of obedience. So Jesus is not ready to go public, but he also cares about the groom who is going to be terribly embarrassed by the lack of wine. Jesus doesn't want that to happen, and this is what I, what I love about Jesus. This is the wabi-sabi part of the story. It's just the way he does things. It's what I love about Jesus, the way he does things. Nearby, there are six stone jars. These jars are going to be filled with water, and they're used for two things. First, for washing the feet of the guests as they arrive you know, off the dusty streets of Cana. It's not polite to bring your filthy feet into someone's house. And so the servants would use that water to clean the guests' feet as they arrived. Not a fun job, washing feet. In fact, it was a demeaning job only for servants. I mean, this was toe jam water. I mean, it was nasty stuff. Remember how Jesus washed his disciples' feet during the Last Supper because there were no servants to do that humble job? And Jesus used that as a teachable moment about the, the reality of servant leadership, foot washing. Well, that was the first use of that water. But second, the water was also used for hand washing during the marriage feast. And after every course of the meal, the servants would pour water on the guest's hands for a ceremonial cleansing. The guests would hold their hands over a bowl, fingers up, and the servants would pour the water and let it run down their wrists. And then the guests would point their fingers down into the bowl and the servants would pour water again so the water would run off their fingers. And then the guests would make a fist and kind of rub it into the other hand back and forth, like kind of like putting it under a dryer in the restroom. It was part of their custom and their attitude of cleanliness before God and actually a pretty good way to get fried chicken off your fingers. But each one of these jars can hold up to 30 gallons, so it's not some little water bottle. Altogether, 180 gallons, and Jesus asked the servants to fill them to the brim. Now here, the simplicity of Jesus it was, is what is so remarkable. How easily, how quietly, and with hidden dignity, this miracle was done, so there's no drawing attention to himself, or even acknowledging that a problem exists. There's no hocus pocus. There are no fancy prayers, no commands, no incantations, no hysterical shouting, no rebuking of the devil, no laying on of hands. There's none of that. This miracle is so casual, so casual. Jesus never even touches the jars or tastes what's inside. Just with simple dignity, he willed it to happen. He willed it to happen and the water became wine. And the only ones who knew what transpired were the servants and then later the five disciples. So simply and quietly, Jesus demonstrated his remarkable power over all of nature. Now, some people stumble over the idea of miracles in the Bible. But, you know, if God is the creator of all things, then it was a small thing for him to use what he has created for his own purposes. God is the one who designed the universe to operate as it does. He understands far better what we call natural law than any one of us. He understands how to use the natural order. He created the vines and the soil and the grapes and even the process of fermentation. So water to wine, that's like nothing to the one who created one sextillion stars. That's how many stars are estimated to be in our universe. One sextillion. That's a one followed by 21 zeros. 
And so if Jesus is the author of creation, like we're told in chapter one, then water to wine, folks, that's child's play. Read C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, if that's an issue for you. It's a great book from a really great mind. And then Jesus tells the servants to take a ladle full to the master of the banquet, the steward, the guy who's kind of acting as the MC of the party, to get his approval. Now, who gets that job? To take foot-washing water to the boss and have him drink it. Who gets that job? Who's the newest guy on the team? Who's the low man on the totem pole? All the servants are probably off to the side watching as the poor dumb schlub hands the ladle off to the steward and they watch him bring it to his lips, watch him begin to taste it. They expect him to spit it out, laughing to themselves that their boss is drinking the toe jam water. But then the expression on the boss's face changes. It lights up. His eyes go wide and he says, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. Slaps the groom on the back. You sly dog. Most people put out the good wine first and then later bring out the cheap stuff. But you've saved the best for last. And of course, the groom has no idea what he's talking about. But he's smart enough to keep his mouth shut and take the credit. This was a hidden miracle in the sense that Jesus didn't take any public credit for what he did. But the servants knew. And so often in the New Testament, we see that God reveals himself to the common folks and not to the A-list people. The servants knew. No one else knew where it came from, just the servants. Jesus reveals himself to the lowest people at the party. Keep that in mind for a second, because the gospel writer John adds this little note of commentary on the why why this story is so important, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. The purpose of this hidden secret behind closed doors miracle was to reveal just a little bit of Jesus's divine glory so that his five new disciples would believe. It was a confirmation that they'd made the right decision in choosing to follow him. You know, we learn so much about Jesus from this short little story. If, as the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God, then we learn so much about God, too. That Jesus would even attend a function like a wedding. I think that's so significant that Jesus went to this most happy occasion and he made it happier. He made a happy event even happier. And I love that. God is not the great killjoy in the sky whose job it is to make sure nobody ever has any fun. He's not a cosmic killjoy trying to suck the fun out of life. In fact, it's just the opposite. Like Jesus says in John 10, 10, he came to bring life in all its fullness. And as you read through the gospels, you can't help but see that Jesus loved a good party, not drunken debauchery, but a really good party with all your best friends. And isn't a good wedding reception a great way to illustrate that kind of joy? Isn't that why so often Jesus described himself as the groom at the wedding? And that heaven will be like a giant wedding reception, dancing and food and fun and celebration. The other thing we learn about Jesus is that he takes what is ordinary and turns it into something special. He takes what is ordinary and turns it into something special. Not only does Jesus make toe jam water into wine, he makes it into the very best wine there is. No Boone's Farm for Jesus. 
top quality. And that's what Jesus does for each person who puts their lives into his hands. He takes what is, a, what is ordinary and makes it into something special. He takes your ordinary life and turns it into something special because now you're united to him. You become his precious daughter or son, as we saw back in chapter 1. You belong to him and you discover a greater purpose for your life. Jesus takes what is ordinary and turns it into something special. Now, one commentator that I read points out the significance, possibly, of the six water jugs. Why six? He speculates that Jesus and his five disciples arrived at the wedding empty-handed. That means six people came with no gifts, no gifts for the happy couple, which would have been kind of a major faux pas. It's as though Jesus said to his new disciples, don't worry, boys, I got this covered. Six of us, six jars of wine. Now, each one were told, as I said before, 30 gallons, total of 180 gallons of water, uh, of wine. That's a lot of wine and really good wine. So it's probable because of these six uh, uh, jars of, of wine that that could have been the most lavish gift of the entire wedding. Why? Because God wants us to celebrate life and all the good things. He's not some killjoy in the sky, as I said. He's the God who takes what is ordinary and turns it into something special. And he can do that for you. Have we given him a chance to move into all the areas of our life like that? The small things, the frustrating things, the challenging things, and the fun things. Jesus is fully involved with the party of life. Fully involved with the people. He's not detached, not disinterested. You know, Jesus didn't go out and live in the desert and live in a cave like John the Baptist. He was fully engaged with life, not insulated from life. He wants life to be a happy, meaningful celebration. Have you given him the chance to move into the areas of your life like that? Because he wants to be part of it all. When Jesus enters the human heart, he changes it. His desire is to produce a quality of life in us that we cannot produce on our own. You know, life can be dull and kind of flat and tasteless without meaning or purpose. But Jesus injects real meaning and purpose as we recognize our deep need for him. His forgiveness changes things, changes us as we yield to him, as we see him in all his fullness and as our exalted and reigning savior. That changes us because he calls us to his own and we realize our value. (coughs) We belong to him. A new quality of life gets introduced into our lives when we're in touch with Jesus, not as some historical figure, but as our living friend and Savior. You see, a sad kind of negative Christian is is kind of a contradiction in terms because Jesus enters in and he really enlarges our capacity for life, enlarges our capacity to appreciate, to enjoy life. And you may be walking through some deep stuff right now, some heavy stuff, tough decisions. Maybe the week ahead doesn't look too easy. Jesus can touch your heart and life with the same fullness as he touched those ordinary water jars. He wants you to be the wine, the wine that manifests his glory to the wider world. So this is the first of seven signs that Jesus or that John will record for us in his gospel. This miracle was not for Jesus to show himself to the world, but just to encourage the faith of his little band of disciples. The story shows us Jesus as God's man, ruling over all of God's world, the one who has dominion and authority over all the natural world and the spiritual world, the one who transforms life, who enlarges our capacity for life, 
who takes what is ordinary and turns it into something special. Friends, that's Jesus. Hope you have a great week.